Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. And <laughs> <laughs> as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello. I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to this episode of The Stages Podcast. My guest today is Tony Knight. Tony was the head of acting at Australia's National Institute of Dramatic Art from 1992 to 2011. Some of Australia's most celebrated national and international actors came under his tuition and guidance. He's also been the program leader for the musical theatre course at LaSalle College of the Arts in Singapore. His experience in the training of actors is vast, and he complements this with a passion for all the performing arts. Tony is incredibly engaging, informed, and committed to making the ordinary extraordinary. All right. What, okay. to, when did you first start smoking? Probably when I was about at NIDA. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, I could say it wasn't in your, in your teenage years. No, probably about 18, 19 I started smoking. Right. Yeah. And there was peer group pressure or...? Uh, I guess so. It's nerves, too. Right. I'm very nervy, as you know. So, um, uh, I find it, I spe- the worst time of smoking is when I'm working in front of a computer. Right. Because, um, but I use it to think and smoke and look, other people have medicine balls. Because I don't, I don't regard myself as, you know, having ADT or anything like that. Right. But, um, I know that, yeah, it's just one of those things. Not good for an actor. Of course not. Of course not. Have you ever tried to stop smoking? Many times. Right. Linda Cropper and I many times. She's done it. Right. Um, uh, and I've gone, I've gone probably the maximum three months. But um, look, it's a, I saw a wonderful play, um, Smoking with Grandmother. This is a funny thing. Uh, it was a part of the festival, a, a French festival, and it came from Hong Kong. And it was actually the only time I've ever seen a justification for smoking on stage. And it was about uh, this grandmother who had gone through the Cultural Revolution and lost everything. And the only thing that she had that reminded her of family, she had um, a pipe. And so she smoked partly because it was actually all she had. Um, Now, of course, I'm not in that situation. But it just made me think, you know, for some people... That's in a lot of places you smoke because that's all you have. And there's a whole history of smoking that's fascinating. Jenny Hagen and I, we went, uh, we were on this cultural tour uh, in Paris, and because of Simonen, we were invited to the Comédie Francaise one morning. And um, we went, 
and uh, we were shown all the way through it. And we were told the actors had just were doing their first reading of, I think, of Fedor or something like that. And they were rehearsing in the Moliere room, which is this particular room within up, up, upstairs in the Commedia Francais. And um, and they said we would just drop in and say hello to the actors. Well, we walked in. <laughs> And there was this haze of smoke. This is about ten o'clock in the morning. And there's this haze of smoke. And there's alcohol on the uh, on the uh, on the table. And they're all sitting around it and all like this. But I've never forgotten this haze of smoke because of the chatin smoking. And we just looked at each other and burst out laughing and said, "Oh, we, we, you'd never be allowed to do this in Australia." But they're French, so it's. Well, it's like that video series of uh, John Barton's directing Shakespeare. Yeah, playing Shakespeare. Yeah, they're smoking. And McKellen and yeah. uh, Davis O'Shea, they're all... Yeah, they're puffing away. Yeah. I know. Tony, what were you doing around Oxford Street in Sydney in 1978? Ha! Well, I was actually living in London at that time, and so I was back uh, visiting my family. And, um, and I went out with a group of friends, and it was sort of like... Um, Oh, look, there's a parade happening. It wasn't... We we didn't go to this thing intending to be gay activists or anything like that. We just happened to be, like a lot of other people, witnesses to it. And we followed it up to the cross, but we didn't... Um, we were right at the back. So when the police charged, um, we were quite a distance from the Alana Main Fountain where, where there was the main problem. So we were more like at the top of the cross, and uh, but there was suddenly all this commotion, and you and people started to run, and, um, and wow, you know, we just we didn't, well, we we didn't. It was confusion. So I never regard myself as a seventy eighter because right. that's I wasn't. Then my friends, we weren't in the parade. You were an observer. We were observers, yeah. like a lot of other people yeah. were, and um, we we got. We didn't really know what to do. It was like there was, it was a, it, you felt that wave of panic and that chaos. And, and look, we were all old grammar boys, so we kind of went, well, we know where we are. It's not as if we don't know where we are because the cross. And, uh, but this one guy, it was a sex shop, and he waved us in, um, come over, because everybody was running everywhere. And, uh, and he took us into his sex shop and said, go down there. And we went down these stairs. And it was a back room. And none of us had ever been in a back room, so it was a filthy thing. And, uh, and we just stayed there for about 15, 20 minutes, maybe longer. It wasn't that long. A giggling, you know, what the hell's this? And then this guy came down, and then he opened up the back door to an alleyway, which we didn't even know was there because it was dark, and we just, I think we just walked down towards Elizabeth Bay. And... Um, so that's, I mean, I've been asked about it before, but as I stress, I'm not a 78er. Yeah. We were just there watching, with watching. That, that, that watershed moment yeah. for uh, LGBTQIP yeah. in Australia. Yeah. But I do remember quite clearly what the being aware that something had happened at the other end of the street and people were running uh, and, you know, there was that, that wave of, of panic and... Um, Oh, I know. I guess we were so naive, really. We didn't necessarily panic. We just, because, as I said, we were grammar boys. We were, we knew that area yeah. quite well, so we yeah. didn't, weren't frightened, Was I'm sure a lot of other people were. We, you know, it just all just happened. Yeah, it's a strange thing. Yeah. You were involved with the Mardi Gras for many years, weren't you? I was. Um, uh, not just uh, 
right, um, I think I came back to Australia in 1980, and that and there were there were the the original marches and the original parties, and Graham Harvey and I. <laughs> Graham Harvey and I decided to become... This is when they put out the membership for the first time. And Graham and I decided to become joint members. And um, and so we went down there and we signed up as this you know, under a pseudonym called Lech Feely. Now, no one would really know who Lech Feely is, but Lech Feely is a character in Dennis, um, Patrick Dennis's Little Me... And it, and in the fifties, uh, when Little Me first came out, uh, Lech Feely was this gay iconic figure. So for years, Graham and I had this joint membership under Lech Feely. No one ever picked it up that it was not a real person, you know. So I could show you the book. I've still got Little Me somewhere. You would have thought there'd be a few uh, Artie Mame fans. Well, you would, but Little Me's not really known. Right. I've got an original print. I'll show it to you later yeah. of um, uh, of Little Me. So that was then, and then many years later, uh, about two thousand and eight. I'm sorry if I'm a bit vague on dates. Um, I was approached by David Erming from the Mardi Gras that the uh, they, there was a place on the board, and it was that time when the board was going through a number of different changes and they wanted somebody of um, artistic to try and lift the artistic level of Mardi Gras. And David came to see me and asked if I would come onto the board. Uh, by that stage, I, of course, I was a fully paid member of my own right. Um, and I said, yes, OK. So I wasn't... When I first joined the Mardi Gras board, I wasn't elected. I was subsequently elected, but um, that first appointment was there to uh, to be the artistic voice. And this was the thing about... You know, a lovely Anna McTurney and a whole lot of wonderful people, Steph Sands, um, who are just who are still very, very active, uh, and it was a great group. We faced certain problems, of course, but my drive was to be to lift the artistic level of it. And so, this is the issue of even talking to Ignatius Jones about getting involved as an artistic director. That all happened a bit later, but uh, establishing workshops so groups could come and talk to people about creating floats and uh, that whole movement sort of started. But my biggest contribution to that was um, the Spencer Tunic photo. Uh, Now, uh, because Mardi Gras hadn't really gone into the world of the arts of that type of art sort of regarding a, an international profile and there was money in reserve to employ this and the board the lovely board they didn't really know who Spencer Tunick was and it was being put forward by a member of the Mardi Gras management team and I supported it and uh, it was costly and it, co- and it caused a lot of uh, argument about how, are you prepared to spend I think it was about $100,000 maybe would be less, I can't remember, um, on bringing Spencer Tunick to Sydney to do the nude photo shoots at the Opera House. And, so is that uh, his first visit to Sydney, was it? I think so, yeah. yes. Um, and, and it happened. Uh, actually, I was only just looking at it the other day. And, um, and of course, on a, it was a, a, a Sunday, an early morning, I can't remember, a weekday, I guess, and suddenly f- about 5,000 people arrived from Sydney, all over Sydney. And 
And Spencer had this beautifully, it was all very well looked after. Like, you know, we all stood around and we registered and then it came the moment where everybody had to take your clothes off and run onto the steps of the opera house and everybody was cheering. I mean, it was freezing too. And of course, then suddenly all the helicopters started to circle and, uh, the, news and, and the news was out that you know, 5,000 people were stripping <laughs> at, the, at the opera house. And um, But Spencer was, uh, the way he had it all organised and the way the whole team operated, it went very smooth. Um, you were you were told very very firmly that uh, any type of lewd behaviour you would be immediately thrown out by security, and there was only I think only one or two instances like that. More playful rather than actually anything overt, um, and of course that attracted like international attention to Mardi Gras in a way that had never happened before, really, mm-hmm. and uh, and those photos stand. So I've always been quite proud of that. What did I achieve? I achieved what I set out to do with Mardi Gras. I lifted the artistic profile of Mardi Gras. I don't have. I haven't had anything to do with Mardi Gras now for well, yeah. over well over ten years, and um, and I've got no desire to. Uh, but I always thought it was the issue. The most important thing with Mardi Gras was the parade, and there is a way to make it actually more um, artistically uh, important as a pro- as a social protest. <clears throat> the Thais were always the best, really. Any of the Asian groups, you know, they they just they were some extraordinary things. But uh, so I got, I, it was that whole thing about I'm tired of watching people walk down the street as if they're out of cabaret or Chicago or Rocky Horror. Yeah. There's got to be something else here, yeah. and there is, there is. And subsequently, I know that there has been a big improvement. So I hope that in the future that um, that get somebody like a Spencer Tunic back to do, I mean his current work is amazing mm. um, uh, to do it again because mm. uh, there were about five different locations there was the front there was the steps there was also inside the concert hall there was also a couple of uh, spots in the botanic gardens that Spencer did and I, and I went out with him a couple of times nice man nice man very, a bit difficult to talk to very shy but um me being me, you know, just babbling on. So, um, <laughs> and uh, and he, and I actually quite liked him, you know, and, and fascinating to talk to, really. Yeah, you know? yeah. Oh, that's great. Hmm. Now, Tony, like me, you are a, a passionate historian. Yes. History is important, isn't it? Very it's, much um, so. It's, and communities do that largely through stories. Yes. The theatre, mm-hmm. um, oral stories. They're all cultural necessities. We learn from stories. What was the first story that you heard or that you told? Ha! That's a very good question. Well, it's associated with something else. It's associated with one of the things I always ask young acting students, and this is a very, comes from Stanislavski, it's associated with a thing called the lure. <clears throat> I believe regarding actors or any of us involved in the theatre that, that you see something in your childhood that is like... Um, it sets a trigger off. It's like an awakening, if you like. Um, a chord is struck and you go, oh, this is what I want to do. Now, for myself, and I think for many others, it was pantomime. So uh, going to... My parents were very supportive of us, uh, my sisters and myself. They loved the theatre, so we, went, we were going to the theatre at a very early age. And I can remember going to the Tivoli, thank God. Wow. You know, I must be the last group of children who were taken to pantomimes at the Tivoli, but also at the Independent Theatre and... Uh, Doris Fitton. Doris Fitton. And, um, I mean, Rich Livermore, I remember Rich Livermore being in the, uh, the... I think it was The Wizard of Oz, but Snow White. So it's actually or I think for a lot of us, that whole story... It begins even with Disney. You're going to see the famous stories of the 
of the, those fairy stories yeah. the, of Cinderella. And what's fascinating about the Cinderella story regarding storytelling, it's virtually every culture in the world has a Cinder, Cinderella story, which is the rag to riches uh, story, the myth yeah. of a rag offering which, hope. Pygmalion. Pygmalion. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's, it's a fascinating thing, that wide world web of where we all sit. Every culture will have a, um, a rag to riches and I got into it with, I mean, I, my parents also being avid readers, is the, Gr- the Grimm's fairy tales. Uh, and look, yeah, I'm a Disney child. Wizard of Oz. We all share Wizard of Oz in common. Yeah. And, uh, and so there was all those Pinocchio and all those, those Jules Verne science fictions. I think they were all the early things. Why does the Wizard of Oz resonate so strongly with the gay community? Friends of Dorothy. Yeah. Well, actually, I think it might be today is the, cele- is the celebration. We're heading towards Stonewall, right. what, the anniversary. It's like it's either today or tomorrow. Um, well, um, I don't necessarily know beforehand, but the reason why the uh, drag queens and the uh, street uh, prostitutes were meeting at Stonewall on this particular date was because Judy Garland had died the week before and they were actually having a, uh, a, like a, a memorial, memorial for her. Um, and that was, that, that was the reason why they were there at the Stonewall when it happened. Um, so I think that's where the Friends of Dorothy comes from. But it's also, uh, well, it's Judy Garland. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's Judy Garland. Judy Garland. And, and Margaret Hamilton. Yeah. You know, the Wicked Witch of the West. I'm melting. I'm melting. <laughs> and there's a, there's a high level of camp in there because um, Bert Lars' uh, Cowardly Lion is the campest thing you've ever seen. I mean, all three of them, that those three wonderful, wonderful vaudevillians, um, give such camp performances. You do... They're, they're feminine in a way, actually. And, uh, but Bert Lair in particular, as the cowardly lion, is, is quite extraordinary. I've got a little story about that, if you want to go on about that, regarding history is, uh, and gay, the gay presence in history. There's a great film called Dad and Dave Go to Town. Australian film. Yeah, Australian yeah. film. Made in the 30s. Uh, and um, Kenji Hall. And uh, there's a character in it, uh, Mr. Th- Throstlewaite, um, and what is this is the 1930s, and it's one of the, it's now regarded as one of the very first uh, sympathetic roles of a gay man in cinema, world cinema. I mean, you have in the 30s what are called sissy roles, yeah. and that are often been the say in the um, uh, um, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers films. There's uh, usually a sissy role there somewhere. Edward Everett Hall. Yeah, and he's usually married, but it's a sissy role. Yeah. And Harvey Feinstein talks about I love the sissy roles, you know, because he's a big sissy. And uh, and it's a particular cultural character that develops. And yeah, this one character in Dad and Dave comes to uh, town um, is a positive uh, version of a gay man. Once again, you wouldn't think this would happen in Australia, no. but it does. And this character was so popular, he comes back in another Dad and Dave film, um, and he 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 helps Dad and Dave against the the villains. And so it's actually not presenting, unlike American cinema, where uh, usually gay men are presented as either psychopaths or they're really sick people or villains. Here in Australia, we. We don't tend to do that, mm. which is a bit bizarre, mm. you know. And you can see that in the history of the gay presence in Australian cinema. Not always, but, you know, Head, head On, Priscilla, um, even to a certain extent in a, a couple of other films, there's... Um, it's not... They're not sick. They're just... They're effeminate, but they're not regarded as something that is... A, um, it's not a derogatory 
portrayal. Although I know head-on's pretty hard-hitting, but he, he's, you feel for him. And Alex Dimitriatis and Paul Capsis give great performances in that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and same with Priscilla. Everybody loves Priscilla. So the whole history of drag queens here in Australia, we love our drag queens. Yeah. And that ties into something else regarding history. When Oscar Wilde ran into his problems in London in the 1890s, virtually uh, in, in the UK and America, I mean, six or seven successful plays were running, which is including The Importance of Being Earnest, they all closed immediately. Not in Australia. Mm. We kept them running. Mm. It's, it's strange our paradoxes maybe because he's Irish and we were sympathetic I have yeah. no idea oh it's just funny and we kind of thought no it's funny leave it on yeah. you know did we do enough in Australia to preserve our arts heritage do you think mm. look um, I think there's a lot of people out there who try um, and there is certainly all these wonderful historical societies that actually are, are doing their best and there's the museums and the libraries I mean the South Australian Museum is currently celebrating its 150th um, the things are still there but no no we don't yeah. like you can go and talk to uh, look in the area that we're in theatre you can easily talk to young people and they haven't got a clue about the uh, actors of the past but then is that their fault? No, it's no. not their fault. Uh, it's partly, as Shakespeare says in Hamlet, uh, defining actors is that they are the ab- they enact the abstract and brief chronicles of the time, and abstract as as the art form is abstract, but brief in the sense is very few actors are remembered beyond their own lifetime. Very few. They have to be iconic, like a Marilyn Monroe, Olivia. I don't even know if Olivia is so much right. remembered. He may be in England. Um, here, certainly not. Certainly, you t- you'd mentioned, say, Dame Judith Anderson, who was right. born in Adelaide. Um, fantastic actress. Great, one of the great actresses of the 20th century. No, most don't know. So they're the celluloid actors who live in... No, I don't think even that. Even you, I mean, you, Marilyn might be the difference, yeah. um, and possibly Elizabeth Taylor, but I think... Uh, no, I don't think they are. No, I don't. And I think that's some. Some are. Yeah. It depends on what the film is. Like maybe Vivian Lee is because of Gone with the Wind. But even then, I don't. You meet a lot of people who've never seen Gone with the Wind. Yeah. And uh, but even with Australian actors, most will have probably seen uh, Mad Max, so they'll be aware of Mel, um, or uh, which is now quite old. You know, it's quite. It a, is. But you mentioned, say, um, uh, My Brilliant Career, or even Picnic at Hanging Rock. You'd get a blank. Yeah. You know, and that's. But it's not their fault. They're just not taught you know um so it's very much all about in australia about being in the present which is okay you know that's what it is but we don't build upon the past and my argument always is is not to blame anybody is like you uh, our responsibility as teachers is to guide them towards these things and actually say uh and help to inspire them so that they get not just knowledge for knowledge's sake i think that's the wrong approach it's to saying how does that inform your creative choices now if you knew what was going on beforehand it's like dealing with actors especially with shakespeare um because there's such a great uh history of recorded performances like a 400 year over 400 years of of performance history regarding shakespeare and um and I always say, uh, there's wonderful books about uh, that you can get uh, copies of performance history of what, say, Olivia did or, or Keane did or Irving. And I always go, look it up. You know, 
Find out what Sarah Siddons did when she... I mean, it's a famous version of Lady Macbeth. She has wonderful solutions. Take it. Don't be so proud and arrogant to think, oh, it's got to be mine. I'm so... And I go, no, you're walking in the footsteps of hundreds and thousands of other actors who have got insight to performing roles. And that that does work, actually, I found. Once they see things, you've got to show them. Well, Tony, a great deal of your career has been about training actors, teaching the craft. Are you able to go to the theatre now and and just give yourself over and relax? Or are you constantly analysing and uh, evaluating? (laughs) I'm constantly (laughs) analysing. Nothing if not critical. Um, But every now and then... um, Especially, I'm lucky living in Adelaide because the festival is extraordinary. And you, uh, every now and then you'll see something where you just go, oh, I don't have to worry about the standard of the actors. They're really good. You know, um, and that's happened, I have to be very honest, but that's usually happened with overseas companies. Yeah. Um, like I, one of the most extraordinary things I saw a couple of years ago was uh, the Travis Theatre from Edinburgh brought in David Ireland's um, Ulster America. The three actors were absolutely terrific. And uh, and that's when you realise that the actors are not just talented, they're skilled. That you go, OK, I'll just relax now. Because they are. And uh, it was the same when um, there was the Von Hove uh, Kings of War. He brought his whole company out from Amsterdam, or from, I think it was Amsterdam. And just the quality of the acting was like, vastly superior to what we see here. And I've got a little bit of a theory about this. I think we've fallen in love. I think there's a change in acting styles here compared to other parts of the world. We like it demonstrative. Yeah. We like it big, which is okay. That's what it is. But I I watch actors outside of themselves and they're not centred. So, And Kevin and I, Jackson and I have talked about this a lot. It's um, And both of us talk teach from an experiential point of view rather than a demonstrative point of view um and it's fine if if, i mean you can get good demonstrators that are very effective and thrilling it doesn't necessarily mean a a reduction in scale but the great actors tend to be centered and and sit with inside themselves no matter what it is and they've got the voices they've got the bodies um and they're not pushing you just feel a very strong comfort with it. And there, of course, you can see it here, but it's not common. Right. Why, why then has the Australian actor achieved so much success uh, in the American market? I think it's because of the way they occupy space. And years and years, and years ago, uh, what was also said to me uh, regarding Australians, this is when I was training at the Drama Centre in London, um, uh, I think yeah, Malcolm said it too, you don't carry 2,000 years of history on your shoulders, which we don't. So uh, our whole thing about, I mentioned to you before, about where Australian actors begin is usually in intimate performing spaces and so that there's a confidence in a relationship between actor and audience that is quite intimate and physical. Um, The Australian actor is a very physical actor. Um, They're inventive. They're also very quick. That's actually another reason why they're all well-known in Hollywood is they're quick and they take their art quite responsibly. The other thing about all those great actors, and this is not just the Australian actors, is they're obsessive. It's the one thing about them is that, uh, like any profession or any art form, you've got to be a little bit mad, right? And that um, and that madness... I was listening to a golfer talking about it, how uh, a famous Australian golfer, he said he wasn't as obsessed with the 
sport as, say, a Tiger Woods or somebody like that. And he knew that that was actually the difference. And I kind of went, well, that actually applies also to acting. If, you know, they're all wonderful people, the ones I know, they're really fantastic, but they are obsessive. So they, um, so... But that's a great thing. It's not a, it's not, it's not a negative thing. So, so that I know that they'll, they'll take one line of a play or a screenplay and they'll work on it religiously for a whole day. One line. And, um, and I think that's partly the difference. It's this, one of the de- definitions of acting that I give is acting is detail. And so every single second has the potential to be extraordinary. And the great actors do that. They actually go in, they look upon it and discipline themselves to know everything is extraordinary. Now, whether that be through improvisation, which I think is also important, or just religiously being prepared uh, with research, there's lots of different entry points. Nonetheless, I think that that's one of the things that they, they take their craft and their art extremely seriously. It's mm. not a hobby. Mm. It's a real, it's an art form. Yeah. Yeah. Does age make for a better actor, do you think? life's palette I think so experience yeah I think so I mean that's that classic thing and I've been fortunate to travel quite a lot and some of the best Juliets for example I've seen have been in Eastern Europe where you're seeing or watching a a, a 30 year or 40 year old Juliet and you kind of go it actually adds another depth to it and uh, and they do play it young I, I think it varies to be yeah. honest, it's not to say that you can't have an extraordinary young actor. You can, of course. Well, I, was, yes, well, I remember talking to Kevin Jackson once and mm. he had a theory about sometimes it's just in the DNA, right. depending on what the lived experience of the parents or grandparents, oh, absolutely. which carries down through that, through that DNA. Well, I know that everyone will go shock horror, but one of the most, uh, I think one of the best actors I trained at NIDA was Lucy Bell. Right. Absolutely. And I think Lucy's extraordinary. Everything I've ever seen Lucy do, she's brilliant in it. Of course, there are others, but Lucy comes in, as others who've come in from that from background, of course, she has the, uh, the experience of being with Anna and John and being a child in the wings, so she's a theatre baby. She always has been from the birth. And, of course, that's going to inform her choices. I think it's only natural. It happens with Richard Burbage, too. You know, so, you know, so I think that they are... Born in a trunk, I think they say. Yeah. Born in a trunk, like Nellie Stewart. Born in a trunk. Yeah. Tony Sheldon. Tony Sheldon, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Tony, you're now residing in South Australia, but uh, did you, uh, were you born here? Did you grow up here? You're Sydney boy. I'm you? Sydney boy, yeah. born and bred. And um, went to Sydney Grammar School. Uh, uh, so I started going to the, the CBD from the age of nine, from living on the northern beaches. So that was, that. that in retrospect now, you kind of, know that that actually gave one a little bit of an advantage with other, other people. So when you went to subsequently universities, you met people who'd never been to the CBD ever, whereas I was a street kid, in a way, from a very early age, yeah. and grammar being positioned like Darlinghurst. And... Right in the middle of it all. Well, there was still a red light area then, yeah, yeah. and the prostitutes used to make, uh, used to say hello to them. And, there was, and according to subsequently history, uh, the whole thing with Kate Lee and Tilly Devine is um, the rule was out there, you do not touch the children. Otherwise... Oh, right. uh, this is the razor gangs of Darling yeah. yeah. I mean, that was... I was at grammar 60s and 70s, so it, it was at the tail end of all that. I think um, Kate Lee was still alive, or one of them was still alive. And, uh, but it was a golden rule. It's like that you don't touch the children. So you never felt threatened walking around um, Darlinghurst or the city, ever. I never felt there was a, a problem. But I, it's, it's like another anniversary. I, I came up... I was brought up at a time where um, 
when the Beaumont children disappeared, things changed across the entire country. Whereas beforehand, it was used to be you know, just be home before dark. That was before the streetlights go on. Yeah, that's right. That's what you were told. And I was on the northern beaches with my sisters at Coco and around Freshwater Way. And um, yeah, you just were told you had to be home before dark. But when the Beaumont children disappeared, that all changed quite significantly. So, um, yeah, but I, um, look, I, I was, uh, I, I got, when I think about grammar, I, uh, I, I, my parents weren't wealthy and so they sacrificed an awful lot for my sisters and myself to have a, a private school education. And, um, and that's what I got out of grammar when I look back. I'm still friends with a lot of my grammar friends. Um, I got a very good education. And that's, I think, one of the things... Is, I'm, is that what sparked your love of theatre? Well, it was certainly encouraged or certainly supported. Um, grammar produces lawyers and doctors and parliamentarians. And you know, prime ministers. And prime ministers, too. You know. and look, I acted with Malcolm Turnbull. Malcolm, Malcolm, what play? Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest. And what roles did you play? Well, Mal- as I teased him sometimes, Malcolm was my bottom. <laughs> I played Thisbe, flute and Thisbe, and uh, he was also Prospero, and I was in uh, a production of uh, Tempest, and I was, which was at Skeggs, um, at, uh, and I was Trinculo in that. Because so. Malcolm's mother was an actress, wasn't she? I think so, I C- think so. Cousin of Angela Lansbury. Yes, mm. yeah, I think so. I, Mal- I look, I've got a lot of time for Malcolm, I always have. You know, I was also, when I lived in Bondi, he was my uh, our member of parliament, and uh, he and Lucy had just, I think, they're terrific. So... Drama wouldn't have been a subject when you were at school. No, it was part of English. What what was the experience, just uh, school production? Well, there was a thing called the Globe Players, which was a sort of like a, not an elective, it was sort of like a club that you did with a group, and we did things like those plays I mentioned, but they would also do... I remember there was a production of Ben Johnson's The Alchemist that we did, Um, and so you'd you'd stay behind after hours after school and rehearse, and then the show would go on, so... And that was encouraged. And then I auditioned for NIDA, much against my parents' will, and everybody. And I was going to art. And Brian, Brian Siren was an early teacher for me. Right. And, uh, and everyone was saying, no, you don't want to go to NIDA. So at 18, I auditioned. I got in, much to everyone's surprise. And, uh, and so I, I, did, I went into the acting course straight out of grammar. Um, I'd done other things beforehand. As I said, my parents weren't wealthy, so I had to uh, go and earn money to do things. My whole desire was to get overseas because right. I was such into plays and players and New York and London. It was the whole dream. So at the end of, once I finished schooling, I was sent to sea. It was, I had an opportunity to go and earn money. So I call it my Eugene O'Neill period. <laughs> so uh, I was sent off to New Zealand, to Dunedin, to work for three months on a dredge, doing shift work, earning a lot of money. And... So that's what's happened. But then I started NIDA <laughs> after being at sea. And uh, that's a whole Not experience. Not different, really. Oh, God, I can imagine written a pub in that done in. I mean, everyone orders beer and I order a claw and milk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which so, leads me to my next what, what sort of child were you? you I was weird. Precocious or no, introverted? No, no, I was always off with the pixies, as right. my mother would say. I, I think I was always in my imagination. I was a twin who my brother died, right. and so that... Um, come, in, in infancy? Or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, we were about, I think, about a year or something. Um, uh, and there's a whole thing about twins. So I was always really very much in my imagination. Uh, and I, I mean, I strange things. I mean, my parents used to laugh about it. After I read the Narnia Chronicles, I locked myself in a closet. 
I can't let this I came out of the closet when, really early. When did you come out of the closet? And I, because I, I was, I was so determined to get into Narnia. Right. And so I took. Yes. Well. I was writing to Lord of the Rings. I was writing to all of fantasy. So and and look, the thing is about the education of grammar, especially with English literature and history, it was pretty wonderful mm-hmm. to have all that because you were encouraged because the reading we were just discussing this the other day is James Joyce still studied because we did portrait of an artist as a young man at grammar wow. and uh, I don't know if it is so when Bloomsday happened I was wondering is Joyce taught at schools anymore well I think since then a whole lot of literature has been created that is now studied you know yeah true that is true I think generations tackle different repertoire perhaps you so Attending Nimrod a lot too, I believe. Yes, your cousin was Alex Yes, Buzo. but Alex, is, Alex Buzo was my second cousin through my mother's side. And uh, so we started... I, look, my parents were big theatre-goers. So we started going to the theatre very early, a pantomimes, but it was also going to the Old Tote, going to Jane Street. And But with the Nimrod, when the Nimrod started, um, Alex's first play there, I think, from memory, was the Roy Murphy show. Uh, which was a part of a double bill, as sort of like a, as a mock send-up of, of football shows. But Rooted comes pretty close afterwards, and then Tom. Um, so we would go as, as uh, to support family, but uh, of course we just kept going. It wasn't. I remember even the first one, Biggles, and then Catherine Brisbane's comment about when the Opera House opened. There was the production of Richard II on at the Drama Theatre that opened the Opera House. And then at the same time, Measure for Measure, I think, was on at Nimrod. And Catherine Brisbane writes this very scathing review of of uh, Richard III and makes the comment that the real theatre, the, the future, is actually at Nimrod. Uh, whether that's true or not, I mean, I don't know. I don't think it is, really, in retrospect, because it's both the whole thing still keeps being weird anyway. But um, And I saw all these things. I mean, my parents were wonderful. We, were, I, we went to everything, and... Uh, and I said, theatre was, it was exciting then because it was all new. Yeah. Um, and especially with Alex, even, I mean, I was very young. I, I, it was the whole thing about um, Australian plays for Australian audiences, what was coming out of La Mama, um, like the first production of the, uh, the Legend of King O'Malley. And um, we were taken to all of these things. And um, my parents were very, very strong on all this. And my father loved Gilbert and Sullivan, so we were often dragged off to all that. And I still have a love for Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah. Um, Shakespeare, I remember seeing the Peter Brook Midsummer Night's Dream, or when the Prospect Theatre came out and did it at the Theatre Royal, which I think was the last things at the old Theatre Royal. And they are exciting times, discovering those works for the very first time. Yes. By the time you've seen your six as you like it. Yeah, <laughs> it starts to wane a little bit. But the one that always fascinates me is I don't know how many times I've seen Romeo and Juliet, and I'm always interested in it, and I've done it. And you always sit there and you go, "If only," but you know it's going to end badly. But you still sit there with the magic. I mean, if people ask me what I think is, my, that's not my favourite Shakespeare. Whenever anybody asks me what is my favourite Shakespeare, it's all, I always respond with Midsummer Night's Dream, and it's partly because, and having done it twice and I'm sure you've done it as well, you yep. sit there um, and do the mechanicals with Pyramus and Thisbe and you go, this is never going to work. This is going to be a disaster. It's like it's just a nightmare. And those awful scenes with the lovers that go, it seems to go on forever and ever. You put that play up in front of an audience and no matter what happens, no matter what it is, especially with the Pyramus and Thisbe and Bottom and all that, the audience just falls in love with them. And yeah. it's sheer theatre magic. Mm. And I don't really... I think... Th- 
I think the end of Winter's Tale can do that. But that's why I think Midsummer Night. I think it's very rare when you have those things that there's something. People say it's actor proof. I don't necessarily think that. It's magic. Something. But Peter Brook is fascinated with something happens between actor and audience that is quite extraordinary in its potency, and you can't even you know you can tell I'm having trouble articulating it because it's uh, it's magic, and I, I you, you look for those things. I think it's what Coleridge touches on, and this is my own personal journey at the moment: is looking for the sublime, what where it goes beyond uh, just a sort of piece of entertainment and that it's actually almost like a religious experience, that, like an epiphany that you get touched spiritually about something. I look for those things in... Well, the audience the, is a communion, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's very rare, I think. Yeah. Is and Shakespeare your favourite playwright? Oh yes, most definitely. Yeah, most most definitely. But I but I'm you know I'm doing my PhD on Richard Burbage, so I'm looking at all the 500 plays from that whole period. But I also love Webster. I love Johnson, Marlowe. I, I love the whole Elizabethan, Jacobean, and Caroline. I love the English classical theatre. I love classical theatre anyway. Yeah. So, uh, but the, the title of your thesis is Richard Burbage, Shakespeare, an actor, and the art of personation. Personation. What is personation? Ooh. Okay, to personate first appears as a uh, term describing acting in about 1599 in a play by John Marston called Antonio and Melita. And um, it, it begins at the very beginning with two actors talking about what roles you're playing and whom do you personate is the term that's used. Then subsequently throughout the... Uh, the next, say, 10 years or 12 years, to personate becomes... or personation tends to become the main form of identifying what acting is about and mainly associated with Richard Burbage. Now, essentially, it's about transformation, but there's something else going on here that is actually probably... Now, I've got to argue this, is uh, the birth of what we would call naturalism. It isn't naturalism as we would describe it now, but uh, it's not fourth wall for a start. It's actually three-dimensional, working on a thrust stage um, or in the round like being on a movie set, really. So it's actually got that element to it rather than uh, uh, being passive and watching a, a thing on a, in a proscenium arch theatre. Um, but it essentially is about transforming. And if you look what Burbage played, whether it be Richard III, Othello, Lear, Hamlet... Um, I mean, actually, every role made a role that Shakespeare wrote. Yeah. Burbage probably paid. I do think he's probably the greatest actor who's ever lived because no other actor has left such a legacy of roles that are still performed 400 years. And it's that whole thing, as I mentioned to you earlier, what comes first, the chicken and the egg? Well, how much did Burbage inspire Shakespeare? Well, I think a lot, actually, um, because he's, Shakespeare's got an actor who is quite extraordinary, who can actually do all these roles and remember them. I mean, the art of memory is an extraordinary thing. But essentially, personation does to personate personas... It Whereas develops. impersonate, impersonate oh, there is, is also is impersonate. copying, yeah. isn't it, really, without the uh, inhabitation? Well, there's, there's a number of words that appear to describe acting at this period. There's uh, counterfeiting, that's one word, and that's usually associated with something that's fake, um, but not always. You can have good counterfeiting, so it's effective. You also have imitation, to imitate me, which is something that Burbage says at one point, and that is about copying. Um, it's how one was trained, 
I'm quite interested at the moment in looking at training, how the young boy players were trained. Uh, the memory play is extraordinary. There's now an argument, a beautiful book, uh, uh, Squealing Cleopatra's about the boy players, um, and Patsy Rodenberg and a lot of uh, uh, voice teachers are have looked at the speeches of the of the female characters and how they they could be looked as a, a way of they're not usually as long in the early Elizabethan period they're shorter and they could be looked upon as training grounds for breath and uh, of training the boy players up to a more higher levels so they're getting ready to go on to become mature players most of the boy players do tend to become um, graduate into uh, adult things not all of them after puberty yeah, yeah. well. It's always questionable when that happens because there's certainly, I mean, like a character like the nurse or Volumnia or any of the older mature women, even Cleopatra, is um, where do they come from? You know, they obviously, so you could, it's possible, we don't know, uh, that a boy player remains in female roles as they build up and then ends up playing the more mature female roles. But somewhere in that period regarding personation, and as we're talking about the boy players, obviously you see in the 1590s that Shakespeare, or the company, had two extraordinary, because you've got Viola and you've got Celia, uh, uh, Rosalind and Celia, and Viola and Olivia, and Portia and Nerissa, and you see this couple get better and better and better. That, that lovely moment with the mechanicals, I think, which character is it? He says, so please don't let me play a female yeah, role. I have flute. a beard coming I've got a beard on. coming, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't think David... Be- oh, I, should, I said I was going to mention any actor. In one of the productions I did at night, I don't think David Berry will ever forgive me for putting him in that role. <laughs> so... Training is at, at NIDA. You, you were there. Did you, did you complete it? No, I got thrown out. All right. So were you not a good actor or did you no, I was behave? No, I, I was terrible. Um, I, no, I, no, I never misbehave. I never missed a day. Um, uh, I, was not, I was 18. I was too young, right. quite simply. And I was not prepared to... And I was very self-conscious. And NIDA made me very self-conscious. But what came out of that year at NIDA um, was very good friends, such as Linda Cropper and John Howard and Peter Cousins, Penny Cook. Um, I was in that group. And, they, and a lot of them are still very good friends. Um, who were uh, the staff at that time? Who were, who were uh, George Whaley. Right. Uh, and that's where I met Aubrey for the first time, Robbie Mellor, who was still a very close friend. Um, John Clark and Elizabeth Butcher. And, the fa- and Betty Williams and a whole lot of them. Ma- Margaret Barr. I adored Margaret Barr. Most people talk about Margaret Quite a Barr. taskmaster. Oh, I loved her. Right. Oh, and, and, she, and I was, that was my favourite class. Which meant? Oh, yeah. But I've never forgotten Margaret turning around and she, she's raving about something. And, um, and she mentions, well, when I worked with Paul Robeson, and I, of course, went... Who? What? Because I knew who Paul Robeson was, and most of my colleagues didn't, and I just couldn't believe that I was sitting with somebody who worked with Paul Robeson. So I, constantly, I got on with Margaret very, very well. Now, a lot of people didn't, but, I, but that's a hint to what I needed. And so I am following Martha Graham and things like that. So I, I, when Night had finished for me, I kind of knew the writing was on the wall. So I took off pretty quick. I went overseas like the day after Night had finished and went to the States, I found out about being thrown out at NIDO in New York, and that night I went to see a chorus line. Can you imagine? I was in floods of tears. <laughs> and um, What I did for love. What I did for love. <laughs> and I was looking at American schools, but they were way too expensive. So I ended up in England, um, in London, um, in which I had family over there, and uh, my father flew out, determined to bring me back to Australia and get me into do law. And, um, I, uh, but I auditioned for Drama Centre, 
uh, for the director's course and I got in. And the reason why I went to Drama Centre was simply because I was going through all the drama schools and I saw um, Peter Brooks' name and Martha Graham's name on the board of directors and um, I went, oh, well, that's, that's for me. And it was. It was for me. And that was a... Uh, so I went back and back... I came back and went back to sea to afford it, went back for three months. Um, and then I went to Drama Centre and went to lived in, in London for nearly five years. So This is the late 70s? Yeah, late 70s. And you must have been seeing some extraordinary theatre. I was a very lucky, yes, you're quite right, um, because at that time, especially with the RSC, that was the period when Trevor Nunn was in charge and John Barton, and so you'd go down and you'd see Judy Dench and Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen, and I was lucky um, to see the um, Macbeth. Uh, oh, that very oh, enclosed yeah. oh, it was fantastic yeah. it was, I've never forgotten it I mean you're sitting there I mean the whole thing about according to Aristotle the purpose of tragedy is pity and terror and usually you see a lot of pity you don't you know try and think of the last time you saw a tragedy there were terror this was scary I, that whole sequence where um where Macbeth comes out just after killing Duncan and he backs into Judy Dench. And, of course, the whole trick with that scene is they can't see each other. It's meant to be dark. The moment he kills Duncan, the world goes black. And so all the imagery is about they can't... Act. So that's the mystery why she can't see the daggers until halfway through the scene. Right. And in how they did that, McKellen backed into Judy Dench, turned around and raised the da- daggers right above her. She screamed, but so did the rest of us. We all just went, ah! And um, and so that was thrilling. Also, the, the first production of Nicholas Nickleby. Um, I mean, the RSC was great, but so was the National. I remember one. I was only talking about this last night. I'm very fortunate. I saw the original production of Amadeus with uh, Paul Schofield and Simon Callow. Um, and I saw all the great knights except for Olivia. I saw uh, uh, Gilgood and Richardson and Albert Finney as the Parkin. And I mean, they were they were inspirational and funny enough Alex came over at one point and was in London and he dragged me off to see uh, Plenty and I fell in love with Plenty and I did cons- consequently but here's Plenty and cons- subsequently did it at NIDA with Anna Torf. so um, that started that whole association with that type of uh, writers uh, David Hare and uh, Howard Brenton and all those sort of things but the thing is about what I found with Drama Centre Drama Centre was a classical training so Christopher Fedes and, and the people there in Yat Malgram were right into the classics we did a lot of classical work which was not like what other trainings were Um, plus there was also Yap Malgram's movement psychology which I still teach Um, but it gave me a very a massive insight because we did you know Spanish classical theatre French classical theatre it was pretty amazing you know and I'm very grateful and Christopher's still alive Um, and I'm very grateful of John Blatchley and it was touching into that whole tradition of the old Vic um, uh, and well, yeah, so I kind of I, I had a wonderful time living in London. Middlely, it was during my, the Thatcher years, yes, yes. and I do remember the Great Strike, the garbage strike. Right. We used to go down and watch the rats, <laughs> but I also remember going to see Star Wars for the first time. Right. You know, because when it came out, and this is when you could smoke in cinemas, and we went to a midnight screen down at Leicester Square, massive cinema, and you walked in there, and the the there was this haze. haze of smoke and the smell of hashish was everywhere. And, uh, but that's, that was the first time. That was, was really, looking back, it was pretty exciting. But then, you know, you look back and it was rose-coloured glasses. I mean, I was a student in London. We were broke, you know. Yeah. And one of the first jobs I ever had that was working in a professional theatre was a dresser. 
to help to survive. And there was a dresser on Calcutta. Now, oh, I, not many costumes. Yeah, so I used to stand in the wings with the with the uh, the, uh, the, robe. the robes, because, <laughs> and you know, and I was thinking about this when this all coming up with the whole thing with Me Too and how people behaved. Of course, I was touched up, you know, but I used to slap them away and just go get you know get rid of rack off and yeah. classic Australian, yeah. you know, and I kind of go, I wasn't offended. I was probably flattered, really, but uh, I did. I never, I never took it seriously, and and it was not. Really, they weren't trying to rape me or anything. No, it was no. just like a, a touch on the bum, but it was like, get real, you know. Yeah. And I kind of think, God, what that, that's all changed now. I know. I, it's a different world. A different world. D- did you act after the actor centre, drama centre? I, I did a little bit. I was because I did the director's course. Yeah. Um, I did. I went to Edinburgh with the National Theatre. Um, I. I don't think I'm a very good actor. I, right. I'm good at certain things. Yeah. I'm a better teacher, director, and so. I, I had a decision to make, as classic sliding doors, um, through the Drama Centre, I was offered to go and work as an assistant director with the Glasgow Sits, but I'd had enough. Yeah. I wanted to come home. I thought if I, to go through another English winter, I thought I'd go crazy, yeah. um, the sense of damp, and I, I was missing Australia, and I was offered... Um, Tim Robbins, who had been through Drama Centre, had uh, was working with the Nimrod acting classes as it was then, and he made me the offer of a, of, of a, a position to teach, and so I took it, and that brought me back to Australia. Yeah. And then you end up at NIDA in a funny turn oh, of events, the oh, school that, that kicked you out. I know. You become uh, head of acting from ninety two to two thousand eleven. Well, it's all like I was so lucky. I mean, even though I was thrown out of NIDA, what was a little bit lovely about John Clark and Elizabeth and Betty Williams and and Aubrey? They kept in touch with me, um, and if any of them came over to to London, they would. Uh, call and say do you want to get together and have a coffee they always kept in touch with me and I, I, in retrospect I kind of think that's really nice looking back on it all I don't really know why maybe they not regret I, I was not good I had to go but I th- I guess they acknowledged that there was something about me so I come back and of course I worked for uh, the actor's studio for a long time and then worked as Rodney Fisher's assistant on uh, with Melbourne and a whole lot of things. And I was at a party at the North Bondi RSL and Kevin Jackson came up to me and I didn't know Kevin and, uh, and asked if I would be interested in teaching at NIDA and joining him because Gail Edwards was about to go over to work with uh, Trevor Nunn on Les Mis. So I was going to basically replace Gail. Um, not that you ever replace Gail. I mean, Gail's brilliant. Um, but I was there was a vacancy, and that would be working with Dean Carey and myself. So, uh, so I said yes, of course I'd love to. And so I came out, and um, I remember sitting in the old offices at NIDA, and there was Kevin, and there was John, and Elizabeth, and and then I met Dean, and uh, and they went, and basically that's how it, I fell into it. How it all started. And then when Kevin decided to leave. Uh, there was what was called a triumphant um, between Tony Taylor, myself, and Dean that went for a year. And then Tony and Dean decided to move on. Um, and uh, Dean went on to create the Actors' Centre, and uh, uh, which is fantastic. And um, and I became... I fell into it. <laughs> it's not that they didn't interview other people. They did. but uh, And I didn't think I had a hope in hell. So I suddenly became head of acting. And that was when I started to do the changes. 
So th- there was a syllabus there, of course. Oh, yeah, very, I had a very good syllabus. your changes, you start to create your own curriculum, I guess. Yeah, I did. Um, and, uh, I mean, the syllabus had been developed by Nick Enright and uh, George Whaley and Kevin as well. It had been a natural progression. And... Um, and so, and I, and I, Nick was a, a friend, a critic, uh, and um, but very fond of Nick. Uh, there was Kevin. But where the biggest, uh, looking back, there were a couple of things that needed to be addressed. One was the am- amount of film and television, because when I took the job on, they, it was two weeks with the ABC and that was it. And I went, okay, this is wrong. And talking to all graduates, going, what do I, including Hugo Weaving and a whole lot of people I knew, going, well, what, what, should one do? I didn't know. I was no one told me what to do, and I just knew it was wrong. I hated the fact that film and television was regarded as some sort of bastard cousin, whereas the majority of work really for professional actors is in film and television, not theatre. And I thought, well, this has got to be addressed. Everybody's telling you to address it. So I slowly, over the, it took a very long time. John and Elizabeth were great. It was always they were always wonderful. You had to fight for everything. So gradually I would add another week or another project or something else very, very slowly, like history of film. So, or doing, uh, kind of long story short, in the end, it took a long time. In the end, it was, um, say, for 10 years, it took, uh, so about a third of the course became, in the end, about uh, about film and television training. Um, But it was scattered through, like, the last two weeks of every term or... Things like that would be happening. And uh, so that's one of the biggest contributions I feel I made to the training. I don't know if it exists like now. It probably doesn't. But um, but the whole thing when NIDA was created, the new NIDA was the film studios and all this sort of stuff. That was very much an input from all of us, but very much from me going, it's got to be there. We've got to do this. And what happened out of that side was something quite unexpected. Um, and I, as I said, I didn't do this consciously. It just was... A surprise. What I didn't realise, but came to realise, is the difference was what I did is I made it part of the training. So it was actually an accessible part. It was integral to the training. And when you looked at that time, this is the 90s, uh, that what was going on at RADA or Juilliard or the other schools, film and television was an elective. It was an or an adjunct. It wasn't actually part of uh, a central part. But I, for some reason... I didn't do it consciously. I just did it. I just yeah. put it as part of the training. And then as a result of which, so in 2000, and this is when NIDA, because it was so successful, people were going, how did you do it? And I'm going, I don't really know. Don't ask me. It was just guesswork. And, uh, but by 2003, suddenly the ITI, NIDA becomes, or well, the acting course becomes the third uh, most important acting course in the world, which was a great honour, and it a lot had a lot to do with that. Somehow, I put film and television into into the training as a central part, as not something like an adjunct. Then, subsequently, other people like Rada and all that started to follow that pattern. They, they all went off their own way, of course, and did what they own thing. It wasn't necessarily following what NIDA was doing. It was just going okay, acknowledging the fact that film and television training was really important to do. The other thing, of course, was involving, which I I guess I take as a bit of a... I'm a bit... I'm not really good at any of this, is um, I tend to run away. Uh, But I know that it was there. I took over at a time when the issue of race was um, quite important and NIDA was regarded as a white man's school. And also the profession was white. And... uh, 
this was the time when if you were Greek or uh, Italian or Polish descent, you were encouraged by agents to change your name yeah. and um, to anglicize it. Well, I said, well, we're, gonna, we're not going to do that anymore. I mean, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, for God's sake. I mean, you know, this is not going to happen. So someone like Deborah Sintras, no, I shouldn't mention people, but, you know, uh, no, you are not going to change your name. You are going to keep your name. And so that was the sort of first front of that, of dealing with all that. And then the issue of training Indigenous actors, of which Dean Carey and Peter Kingston and, uh, and Lindy Davies, uh, at that time, we were all aware we had to do something. And the best advice I got from an elder was, they're not going to come to you. You have to go to them. And that's very true. And it probably still is true, because NIDA was looked upon as a white man's place and not a place for Indigenous students. So started to go out to do uh, uh, to reaching out to like going to Broome or Darwin Wapa was in a far a, a better placing uh, because, Geographic yeah, geographically yeah. and they did some marvellous work and with Bill McCluskey and a whole lot of wonderful people who were um, who did sort of like a precursor to what we were doing yes. it was a whole Aboriginal theatre course that's right yeah. they, they, they were certainly but we, I was sort of you know thank in those days, we talked to each other. So Bill McCluskey's, you know, an old friend. So I could talk up, ring Bill, and go, well, "What do you, what do, you do?" and uh, and follow what they, the advice of what they were doing. Plus, also talking to um, Indigenous elders. Plus, I had at that time there was Justine Saunders. I know you shouldn't really mention people who had gone, but Justine was wonderful, and she was a friend, and getting advice from a whole lot of sources about what to do. There was, for all of us, there was no blueprint. We made mistakes. Of course we made mistakes. And I know it could now look, be looked upon as very patronising, but we were, we were out there going. We had to do something about and this issue of going to them. And subsequently, it slowly started of getting the Indigenous actors, knowing that they could come to NIDA and do the acting course. It was very slow. But it, and as I said, it was not always successful, and I'm sure that there are people out there who hate me. I'm, you know, I've got to accept that. Uh, but it was always a, with the, a good intention to try. And one of the things I think that's different now, very different now. I remember I think it was Bob Mazza said, turned around and said, "Don't treat them any different." No, it was Marshall. I was sitting in this kitchen in La Perouse with this wonderful Aboriginal elder yelling at me. It was terrifying, and um, going. You'd, I was not to treat them any differently from white students. Uh, and, and when those students in the 90s and the noughties came, they, they wanted to play the white roles. They, you know, they, wanted to be, they, didn't want to be, they didn't want to play the black roles. They wanted to play white roles. And that whole thing, yeah, don't treat them any differently. And, of course, that didn't really work most of the time because uh, it's a different way of learning. And so I'd be going back to going, well, that doesn't work. What do I do now? And uh, so, and one thing, as I mentioned to you earlier, one thing I learned about dealing with Indigenous students is you can't generalise because they all come from different tribes, they're different backgrounds, whether it be privileged or whether it be stolen generation, whether it be tribal, desert. It, the, the difference is enormous. And I used to have in my office at NIDA um, a huge uh, a map of Australia, which was an Indigenous map to show the tribes. And it was my way of actually going... Well, I was also showing if any of the Indigenous students came in going, I do care. I, this Reconciliation was the whole thing. I, I know it's not now, but it was then. And um, we were... 
so I'd have I'd, I'd know where the where they came from tribally, and so I'd do my research to go. Okay, well I've got to know this because I've got to help them. And it was massively different because you did go from sort of city to desert pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, and uh, so that's when I always think regarding indigenous women. In the, I stay. I don't involve myself anymore. Um, but uh, I just go. You can't generalize here. It's very very complex and very, very different, and every person's got to be, like every student has got to be treated extremely differently. I've got to remember, I think this is the case for you or for anybody who's in a drama school situation, you're going to be a scapegoat for failure, no matter what, you've got to take that on board. People are always going to blame you for failed careers um, and for things that they perceive as being injustices, which I don't think is necessarily true, but at any one time, you've got 75 students demanding individual attention, and they're all creative young people, full of life and energy, and they're all demanding, as they should demand person, they should be demanding, you know, and, um, and I always encouraged it, probably to my detriment, is to be feisty. I think a lot of the ones I've trained are characterised by their feistiness, actually. They're pretty bolshy, but I, I encouraged all that. Yeah. Um, but I think that's part of the pressure of being anybody who's in one of those positions, and God knows I wouldn't like to have gone through COVID, is you've got seven, you know, 75 egos at you, demanding your attention to, at any one time, and they're young and they're passionate and, and you know, wonderful things, wonderful things, T- tough, demanding, as they should be. Yeah. Right. And you're still teaching acting now? Yep. In South Australia? Yeah. 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 No, I love it. Not necessarily in any of the universities. I think it's a bit woeful here, to be honest. So I'm actually working in uh, with some of the casting agents and agencies. And, uh, uh, yeah, I'm a model. And, uh, there's a move here to go, to go more towards Actors Centre and 16th Street. And I think that's actually partly the way. I think across the board, not everywhere, not by any means, there's some wonderful uh, BA courses. The, the three-year BA course has been around now for, I say, 25-odd years or so. Yeah. I think there's problems with money and uh, curriculum and access. Money, the biggest one. They can't deliver what we delivered. And I know that, even though I'm not critical of NIDA, I do think they still do wonderful work. But when the students I trained at NIDA you do 16 plays within three years. I think it's gone down to about nine now. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that whole way of collaborative working with the other departments, I don't think is there anymore either. Yeah. I think that's all of the drama schools. I think that yeah, is probably. Yeah. I don't really know. Funding, I wish the more Funding the cuts. And... Fun- yeah, yeah. yeah. It's expensive to run a drama school, but 16th Street and Dean's School have shown that there's another way, that there is another way of training. And I think that that's... I don't think you need a BA course now or a doctorate or anything like that or a master's degree to be an actor. They can produce academics, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be an actor just because you've got a BA. Yeah. You know, it might... I know that one of the things... I, God, if, any, if this happened... Oh, my God, this is good. good. If, <laughs> is, um, I know that one of the things that a couple of drama schools do is that you, you're in the course, you do something associated with becoming a teacher... And I kind of go, so you think they've failed before they even start? Yeah, true, true. And, and I think that attitude's wrong. I understand it's well intended, is to give them security so if it doesn't work out as a career that, um, that you can become a teacher. But I look back and I think some of the actors I trained there, they'd have shot me if I actually put that into the course. Yeah. The whole thing was, uh, this was said to me, we're here to act. 
we're here to be trained to do voice classes, movement classes, improvisation. And I certainly work towards that thing to give them as much as possible over three years. To go off and sit and talk about acting or to lecture, they would have shot me. I'd have been lynched. I nearly was a couple of times anyway. So, you know. Tony, what do you value most about actors? There are, there's a couple of things. I love their spirituality. They're the storytellers, abstract and brief chronicles of the time. Um, and as I said to them, I think all of them, and I, I'm proud of all the actors I've trained, especially, you have a social responsibility as an actor because you articulate what others can't. And so whether it be in sort of theatre and education or Shakespeare or whatever you're doing, you just always remember that, that there are people who are looking to you to be the poet of the theatre in a way, to have to express things that they just can't express or don't for one reason or another, whether they're too shy. And I think that is a big social responsibility. It doesn't necessarily mean that everything you have to do is sort of like a state-of-the-nation play or has a social issue. It can be just simply entertainment. I mean, there's a wonderful line at the end of Sullivan's Travels, um, uh, um, Preston Sturgis. It's one of my favourite lines about comedy. And it's, I don't know if you remember the film, but he's watching with all the com- other uh, convicts. Um, I think it's a Mickey Mouse film. And, um, and they're, all, they're all laughing. And there's the whole thing. You've got to remember that laughter is very important. Sometimes it's all that people have. Yeah. And I think in times of the depression, which that came out of, and COVID, I, I don't want to sit through any more COVID things i want to actually sit through a comedy and and with the cabaret festival at the moment in adelaide you're seeing a lot of people simply just having a good time in the theater and laughing it's been a long time since there's been good laughs in the theater and i know that's happened in sydney as well um uh which is i think that's actually quite important um yeah, after, look, I don't want to sit through any more monologues about COVID anymore. I've, I think I've seen enough because um, they don't usually change. And it's, I don't like all the victim mentality. Yes, life's hard. Get on with it. You know, and we're not in India. But it's a natural reaction, isn't it, from a society to w- respond uh, th- therapeutically, I suppose, to but deal with the situation through m- art. Most definitely. I mean, and certainly the last viral pandemic. Yes. AIDS. Yes. We saw all of those AIDS plays and stories and films as a way of coping, dealing with it. Well, I think the AIDS plays from that period are also social protests because, especially the American ones, there's nothing from Australia, notice, but the American ones are all like, because the government wasn't doing anything. Yeah. There was, and so it was actually screaming to go, uh, especially like Normal Heart with Larry Kramer, but even Angels, which is brilliant, or uh, Elegies for Angels, Punks and Raging Queens, um, Love, Valor, Compassion. Uh, they're the big ones. Um, and... They're, they're, they're screams of, notice us, we need help. Yeah. Um, that we're not... I mean, I love Angels in America, probably is my favourite. And of course, Pryor doesn't die. Pryor continues. And uh, I think that's very important to remember with Angels in America. It's not a tragedy. It's a gay fantasia on national themes. Big girls. Um, uh, I, I agree with you, but also if you look back at the Great Depression... Uh, the, the Great Depression also produces some of the greatest comedy that's ever been done, especially in film, but not just film, but it's also the period of uh, Roy Reen and George Wallace and the Tivoli uh, comes. To, and I think that that issue of laughter is a very, it's a way, that's also a coping mechanism. It's one reason why I do like the, a lot about the American musical theatre. Uh, what it is, is it about the American musical theatre that is, I think, very precious is it offers hope. 
invariably its message, no matter what, is about hope. Uh, whether it be even if you're in town, which is pretty crazy, um, or even, not really told so much, but, but there's always that element of, of, of being alive of some way. There's always that we will continue somehow. And a lot of musical theatre, not just American musical theatre, has that element in it, which I always find quite refreshing, that is, the messages of hope. I think we do need to offer messages of hope. There's a lot of misery out there. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, with regarding India, we're going to see a lot of Bollywood. How are they going to deal with this? Yeah. They'll turn it into song and... Bollywood will do something about it. I mean, I can't watch that footage anymore, watching thousands of funeral pyres. And I've got my nephew in Buenos Aires and, you know, I've got friends in China and I'm very aware of how privileged we are here in Australia and we shouldn't be complaining. Admittedly, the rollout's dreadful and it's disastrous and the government should be smacked and there's a whole thing about you know, um, being in hotel quarantine. It's obviously wrong and, there's, and that billowy of family should stay. Yeah. I mean, return your AOs. If you really want to do something, don't go to the Olympics because the Japanese people don't want you. This is what me being political. I say this to my students. I'm yeah. shocking, really. Um, but, you know, you, you're, as actors, you're also political animals. Don't tell me you're not politically aware. That's yeah. crappy. I, get, I do get cross. You can see I'm getting cross now. Is um, I never understand people who say, oh, I've never watched Lord of the Rings or I've never watched Harry Potter. And I go, what sort of actor are you? These are worldwide phenomenons. Yeah. And there's this sort of arrogance going, a, a superiority, and going, well, you've got no right to be superior. You, you know where you copy cop it, you've seen it too, is when people go, oh, I don't want to do soap opera. Barbara Lean one time gave a great thing. She turned around and said, one student who said that says, well, wait till you're in one, or ask to be in one before you snoop down, you, uh, you, you, exactly. you smear it. But I do think that we need to be more political. I mean, there's some wonderful people, and like Brian Brown and um, John Wood leading those campaigns to help the arts. We need more of them. We need, you know, Kate and Nicole should be in there. Just and what you're seeing, of course, in the United States is is the wealthy actors trying to help the um, things. We're not necessarily seeing, or oh, maybe they're doing it behind figures. I do think what Russell Crowe and and uh, the Hemsworths are doing is actually hopefully really good. Hopefully, all that will work out regarding film on the in Coffs Harbour on the Gulf Coast. Best of luck with Byron, but you know, but I, th- I think Russell's ideas are really good, actually, from what I've known. So I do think we could be a lot more proactive. I don't understand why there aren't more companies. I don't understand why in South Australia there's only one adult company that actually does... And of course there's going to be a talent drain. I don't understand why in South Australia there's no equivalent to NIDA. There never really has been. I guess they're a little bit with Drama Centre, but it's not. I don't understand why these things aren't there. I'm too old to actually launch into the fray, and I'm not wanted anymore, which is okay. I'm a spectator more than a participant. I'm quite happy to be so. I, don't, I feel for all of you wonderful teachers that go have gone through COVID. I don't know how you've done it. It's what a challenge and a half. But the thing is, what admire, I admire about all the teachers, high school and in is you have done it. You know, whether through Zoom or through... You've had to adjust and adapt so quickly. But the thing is, you have. You did do it. And I think that's just simply marvellous. So I know I'm babbling on here. I'm trying to think of a a famous thing. Just act better, darlings. All the acting students I've ever taught with, that's the thing that I actually want to know. Tony's advice, you know what it would be. I'd be looking at you going, well, how do I make... Oh, just for God's sake, do it better. Sometimes that's all you can say. There really isn't anything else to say. You know, just be prepared and act better, darlings. The end.
Well, it sounds like you need uh, that smoke. Oh, my God, do I need a cigarette. (gasps) How was that? That was great. That was good. good. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) It is always a treat to catch up with Tony Knight and to access his incredible knowledge and insight into a vast range of topics, from actor training to photography and all the arts disciplines between. My guest today, Tony Knight. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep warm, keep well, and I'll catch you next time.